0: you're listening to the technology for mindfulness podcast episode 11 hosted by me robert plotkin today i'm going to be speaking with meli o'brien also known as mrs mindfulness who teaches mindfulness retreats and courses and also blogs about mindfulness at mrs that's m r s mindfulness.com she has taught and spoken extensively on mindfulness at conferences, festivals, and workshops in her home country of Australia and beyond. We're extremely pleased to welcome Melly O'Brien to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, this is Robert Plotkin, the host of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Melly O'Brien, also known as Mrs. Mindfulness who teaches about mindfulness online, in seminars, and at the Mindfulness Summit. One of the things we talk about in the interview is the pull we can feel from technology, such as the way in which it can feel like our smartphones are calling to us to pick them up. You'll hear some great, simple, and practical suggestions from Melly O'Brien about how to learn to pay attention to this feeling and how to use mindfulness to cultivate an ability to respond to it appropriately, rather than reacting to it automatically. Do you ever feel that your devices are acting on you, as if they're making you do something? Do you ever find yourself thinking to yourself, or even yelling out loud at your phone, why are you doing this to me right now? Why don't you stop? You might know intellectually that your phone can't make you do anything, But that doesn't necessarily make the feeling any less real. Here's an exercise from our Tap into Mindfulness program that you might find useful for exploring this feeling. Pick up your smartphone. That's right, do it right now. And find the icon for an app that feels like it is pulling you towards it. It might be Facebook, Google, or text messages. There might be a badge on the icon letting you know just how many messages are waiting for you. Now, and listen to these instructions very carefully, move your thumb towards that icon, but don't tap it. Instead, let your thumb hover right over the icon, but stop short of tapping it. Now while you're paused in this position with your thumb hovering over the icon, take some time to pay attention to how you're feeling. For example, do you feel that pull, the pull or urge to tap? What is the feeling? What form does it take in your body? Do you feel any particular sensations, such as in your chest, in your head, in your hand? What do you notice about your breath? For example, is it deep or shallow, regular or irregular? What thoughts are going through your mind while you're looking at your phone with your thumb hovering over that icon? Now pull your thumb back and put the phone to sleep. In the Tap Into Mindfulness program, we spend a much longer time engaged in this exercise, but even from this short sample, you can get a flavor of what it is like to sit with the feelings that arise when you move towards using your phone, but stop short of following through on the action that you feel tempted to engage in. We hope you enjoyed today's tip for working on the pull of technology, and that you'll enjoy the upcoming interview with Melly O'Brien about mindfulness in the information age. Hi, Melly, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I want to start out uh, by talking about the fact you have a really diverse and eclectic background in mindfulness. I know you've studied in several different traditions. You teach meditation and yoga as part of your mindfulness teaching. Could you tell us a little bit about your history and background with mindfulness and, and how this variety of experiences Uh, influences how you teach mindfulness to people?
1: I I did take a little bit of a unique approach in the way that I decided to um, learn, uh, not only for myself as a student for many years, and I'm always a student, but um, but for teaching as well. I, I had this, I guess I grew up exposed to Christianity and then I became exposed through various friends to different traditions and I noticed that there was this real tendency in people to get quite sort of serious and dogmatic and um, kind of there could become this kind of hardening around the belief system or the or the dogma of of what was there but i saw that there was this kind of essential truth underneath many of these religions or organizations but what i guess what my approach was i had a few kind of rules of the game for spiritual exploration and one of them for me was that i i chose that i was not going to hunker down with any one way um And because my personality style just happens to be, um, I I happen to be a person who loves to take in lots and lots of information from various sources and then pull out the core uh, fundamental things that are the same. That's sort of just something that I love to do in any field. Um, So I applied that here. I I didn't want to get dogmatic or rigid or um, go along with any one belief system. I had the theory that a belief, yes, it may be comforting. But only my direct realization, my my direct knowing was going to be liberating for me. So I wanted to expose myself to as much as possible and pull out the common threads and the, and it's I'm, I feel so grateful for that because I'm absolutely not not only tolerant but loving very loving of all the world's wisdom traditions and I think they all have something to offer um, and it has made, it, it's also made me in my teaching style. It has to come through me because I, I don't have any one kind of style of teaching because <laughs> I've been exposed to so much. So I, I do have a very eclectic way of teaching. But um, I would say that what my passion is is taking, uh, taking the core essence of the world's wisdom traditions and distilling them down into practical tools and teachings for everyday people.
0: And I, I wonder if that relates in any way uh, to technology uh, in the sense that modern technology is very new. I mean, it's similar, in, in cor- of course, in ways to older technology, but it's very new. It's very different. It wasn't addressed specifically by by older traditions. Does this openness of yours to many different traditions in many ways, do you think, help you uh, in your own personal approach to technology and being in mindfulness with it? Or, and or in connection with how you teach and help people,
1: I think one thing that does come straight to mind when you ask that question is if there's one there's one similarity in the way that I approached understanding the world's wisdom traditions was my number one rule is that you should always know your outcome, always know your outcome. So if my, what, why am I doing that? Why, what is my ultimate outcome? What am I reaching for? That way you don't get confused about what you're doing and go get lost down rabbit holes. So my outcome was to live uh, an extraordinary quality of life. I wanted to know what it was like to live a life where you feel whole and complete and really vital and alive, you know, a meaningful human life. That's that was my outcome. That's what I was shooting for. I had a burning question in me about that. And I think with when it comes to technology or actually anything in um, you know, anything in life, actually, whatever it is, a, 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 whether it's your career or your relationships, your finances, um, we can get really lost in doing when we don't know what we're shooting for and we don't know our outcomes. So when it comes to like using technology, one thing that I do know is that like any power in life, technology is an amazing power. But if you're, you want to use it to enrich your life, yeah. You want, I mean, it's beautiful to have all that knowledge at our finger, fingertips. That is incredible. <laughs> it's an unbelievable power that we have access to. It's, um, you know, it, it's. I, I run my business because of the internet. You know, from home, it's amazing. Um, but we can become really fragmented and lost and addicted and hyper aroused and stressed and anxious because of technology as well, if we don't use it with wisdom. So really, you know, there's, there's, and there's mindfulness in this approach, right? There's a stepping back and going, hang on a second before I spend eight hours on my laptop today, or, you know, let's like say, you say you'd go to work and then you come home and you watch two hours of TV and then you watch, and then you surf the internet for three hours. What, what is that giving you? Is it getting you closer to your outcome, which is maybe maybe for, for me it's to live a deeply meaningful, vitally alive, you know, passionate life, or is it draining me away from that? Is it pulling me towards it or is it, is it taking me away from being my fullest self and, you know, being able to give my deepest gift to the world? So there is that I feel like that, that, that power of always knowing your outcome and then noticing what you're getting Am I get? is this getting me closer or is it pulling me further away? Mm. So if you use technology in one way, I use technology to share my teaching with as many people as possible. That's really nourishing for me. It gives me a sense of service and, um, you know, that I'm helping people, and connects me with people on the other side of the world, like you,
0: <laughs>
1: which is beautiful. That's amazing, and we all get. And then you and I share this together, um, you know, with other people. Um, but yeah, technology. You know, we all know that in this digital era, it, it's really creating a lot of harm as well. So know your outcome. I would say that's um, a common approach in both those fields.
0: And you say it's creating a lot of harm. I wonder if in, in your extensive teaching of many different people and mindfulness, what are some of the common harms or what are some of the kinds of common suffering you see in people in relation to to technology? And maybe then we can talk about what what ways you've found to help guide people through those.
1: Well, I guess uh, you know one of the main things, I and mean, we 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 all know this these days. You know, in this hyperconnected, fast-paced, and and kind of troubled world that we're living in these days, you know, there's a lot of big problems facing the world. Um, human beings, we have a tendency, and we have always had a tendency to want to um, distract ourselves when things get tough, uh, and. Even just there's always been a tendency in the human mind, like Blaise Pascal is famous for saying all the problems of mankind stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So this is not a new thing. Blaise Pascal, that was a long time ago when he said those words. So human beings have always had a tendency to have this kind of restlessness and unease in the background of the mind and we tend when we feel it to want to distract ourselves in doing um, or some kind of escapism, it's like hitting the bottle is one good way to, you know, either numb ourselves or stay busy through distraction. That tendency is now now that we have iPhones in our pocket, you can literally see people um, unable to even kind of walk down the street without constantly distracting themselves or, you know, doing uh something on the phone, you know, people walking. I hear these videos online now of people walking into, you know, freeways and off wharfs and falling in the ocean and doing all kinds of weird things while they're on their devices. So um, the problem with that is not only are we getting more lost in, in autopilot mode, which is the, this kind of pervasive unawareness, where we're not connected with our lives you know you you miss the moments of your day you mm-hmm. miss your your life you know the look on your child's face when they wake up in the morning the you know the steam rising out of your cup of tea in the morning you know the the little beautiful things about being human you know the the feeling of the warm blankets on your skin in the morning when you wake up the little little things that make life you know, good and enjoyable, you start to miss them because you fall into this um, this autopilot mode. And now, the other problem with autopilot mode it's not just that you miss your moments, although perhaps that's the most important thing. You know, maybe and maybe we'd all realize that when we get to the end of our days and look back, huh? That might be we might realize that that was always the most important thing. But it's, there's other costs. Because when you're spending a lot of time in that hyper distracted, mindless mode, what we tend to do is we are, because we don't have enough mindfulness, we don't have enough awareness to choose conscious choices according to our own values and what matters most to us. So, what we tend to do is we play out our conditioning. In other words, we react, we don't respond, we react when we're in autopilot mode. So, that means if you're an angry person when you were younger, then you'll be angry when something goes wrong. If you're, you know, anxious person, if you have conditioning around that, then you have no choice in how you relate to it. You get anxious, you go down spirals, or it spirals into anxiety and depression. This kind of thing. Um, you know, you might stress constantly through the day, um, and you don't have any choice to stop because you're not aware enough to stop. That's a that's a high cost because we don't have to be slaves to our conditioning. We, we do have the capacity for awareness. We do have the capacity to wake up and to choose who we, who we want to be in each moment and how we want to show up and how we want to act. Um, so even those two things, you know, um, those two things alone are, are huge huge costs to pay in a human life to miss your moments and to not be able to show up as who you really are you know your own values what really matters to you those are those big things but you know then there's other there's all these other costs happening as well you know we've got really quickly rising um uh, statistics uh, you know from the world health organization that chronic stress Depression, anxiety, so fast on the rise right now. Depression, according to the World Health Organization, right now is a um, an epidemic. And by the year 2020, which is very, very close now, they're expecting it to be a pandemic. So, um, and a lot of that, I believe, has to do with um, our constant connectivity, getting stuck in states of hyper arousal, and This falling into uh, mindlessness, you know, because essentially if you look at what is anxiety, what is depression, both of them are conditions where you become lost in the mind and then there's a slippery slope down into certain patterns of thinking that really um, are very uh, draining, yeah. Yeah.
0: It sounds to me like you're, you've, you've uh, acknowledged the ways in which we have these tendencies in our minds already. They've always been there, and maybe what I'm hearing is that the technology just presents more constant opportunity to to trigger those proclivities that we have. I mean, I think in my own experience, uh, if I feel distracted, like you said, and feel some temptation to take action before there was a smartphone at my hip, I might not have an immediate opportunity to act on it. And even if I hadn't been practicing mindfulness, uh, the, the, the urge might pass before I could act on it. And now, in, uh, unless I, do something conscious uh, it's so much easier to just act immediately and then go down that rabbit hole with the smartphone if i'm understanding you correctly
1: yeah that's right the 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 patterns these patterns in the mind have been there for thousands of years, you know, the world's wisdom traditions have been talking about these patterns of the mind for thousands of years. It just seems that now, um, through, and I think it's a, to be honest, it's not just technology. It's a, it's a few different factors that are happening in our culture these days, um, that, that sort of come, come together to, um, bring about conditions where those, those parts of the mind are really being, uh, Progress. It's progressing quite quickly now, and 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 you can see the the symptoms, like the things, like the rapid rise in anxiety and depression, that kind of thing. Um, those are those are symptoms of 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 that happening. So,
0: and this is a very basic question, uh, but for, particularly for those people who are not engaged in a mindfulness practice, what would you say is uh, is the way in which mindfulness practice can Help with these kinds of problems.
1: Basically, what uh, what mindfulness allows you to do. So, it probably you know good good to sort of um, explain really that the word mindfulness really just means awareness. It really just means awareness. So, what mindfulness does is there's this training in cultivating awareness, and there. So each of us has awareness that is there prior to thoughts and emotions it's a bigger container than thoughts and emotions and through cultivating awareness what we are able to do is stand back or untangle from our thoughts and our emotions and then we can learn to relate to them differently um and It's really a a powerful capacity for anyone to, I mean, we all have it naturally. Everybody has moments of mindfulness naturally. It's just kind of building the muscle and making it stronger. Um, But when you do that, what you learn how to do is you learn how to relate to thoughts and feelings in really different ways, in really skillful ways where, um, and you also learn to befriend the mind which is a really big transformation because most people have a somewhat uh, antagonistic relationship with their mind without much training. If you don't have training, there's, it's naturally, um, you know, some people have a, a voice in the head that's an inner critic, a little inner critic. Some people have a voice in the head that is like a tormentor, like someone who has depression or anxiety. That voice in the head can become very unpleasant. Um, so through mindfulness training, you kind of learn to almost like break in the mind the way you might break in a horse in a friendly, compassionate way. You le- learn to have this friendship with the mind and, um, and it really transforms your world from the inside out. And the things that I was talking about before, like being able to make conscious choices according to your values and who you really are in this world uh, feels really good. You know, uh, being able to bring yourself fully to this world, to know yourself deeply and be yourself fully in this world rather than acting from conditioning. Wow, it's a seismic shift in the way that you go about life, seismic shift. Life feels very good. You feel very in your integrity uh, living like that. So, um, And also just in relation to technology, like a simple example of what mindfulness could do, is let's say your phone rings and normally you just reach for it out of habit because basically you're not mindful in that moment, which means on some level most of your awareness is lost in the mind. So a lot of the time, this autopilot mode that we speak about is when you're you're no longer uh, fully in touch with the moment, you kind of phase out into this autopilot state um so you would know that anyone would know that by the way if you've ever driven your car home the same way you've driven it a million times <laughs> and then you pull your car into the driveway and you go oh my god I can't even remember the drive home why can't you remember the drive home because you you were on autopilot mode and so phased out that you actually can't even remember driving the car so when we're in that mode if the phone rings your your hand is on it and you've answered it before you even kind of had a moment to kind of be fully connected with what was happening, you know, you just act out of habit. So mindfulness, you would say like the phone rings, you're aware that the phone is ringing and you could make a conscious choice about how you want to participate with this moment. So maybe you want to answer the call, maybe it's the right time, maybe it's not the right time because you're actually really engaged in a conversation with someone, uh, or you're doing an important task and you don't want to break concentration or maybe the phone rings and you just take one breath in, you know, before I answer the phone, I'm going to make sure I'm here. You know, I'm not going to do it out Mm -hmm. of habit. I'm going to take one breath, exhale, and then I'm going to pick up the phone, making sure that I'm doing it with some awareness. So yeah, that's it. I guess I hope that's helpful to people. Sometimes the most helpful way to understand what mindfulness is and how it can help is really by understanding that the opposite state, the the mindlessness and the costs of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Oh, it's very, it's very helpful. And I wonder what you might say to people. I've had lots of people say this to me, and I have the feeling myself, uh, when that phone rings it can feel sometimes like I have no choice. It uh, mm-hmm. feels like the phone is exerting a force over me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, as if it's Not doing to mention something. Not the
1: tweets to- and the like dings and the bings <laughs> and the like instant messages and yeah, all of them.
0: Uh, I wonder what you would say to people about that experience of feeling as if the phone is acting on you. Uh, even when it's just sitting there, uh, I fa- I've felt that very powerfully. Uh, there are moments when I can step back and notice that it's really not doing anything, but the feeling can be very strong.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, we, we live in a culture today where there is an expectation for a lot of people around the length of time that it's going to be before you're going to reply to the instant message um, apparently I found out that a week is not how it's supposed to go. My friends try to educate me, but then I, <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, it's not text etiquette to, um, text someone back a week later. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> no one taught me. So then I say, well, it is actually my etiquette. So, you know, <laughs> you might want to call me or something. Um, but I, I hear you. I, I would, the first thing I would say to someone is, Hey, I hear you, you know, this is, the world that we live in today. So, um, and I would say, you know, to notice that, you know, notice that feeling of pressure. So the phone is ringing. Here you are standing here and the phone is ringing and you feel all of a sudden maybe almost like a bit of a, t- a tinge of an anxiousness, like a, a pressure, like you're saying, like you you don't have a choice that you, you are supposed to answer a phone when it's ringing Uh, in fact you're supposed to dive at it is if it's at the other (laughs) end you've got to run for it Um, well I would just invite people to to question first of all whether that's true and to I guess probably I would invite people to notice how that feels in the body there's something I I I talk to people about digital awareness and digital awareness means you know when a beep or a ding or something goes off and you instantly go for it or, you know, to, to start to, um, or even when you're surfing the internet to start to as much as you can cultivate awareness of the body and your emotions and and how it's actually affecting you. Because by doing that, by becoming a bit more self-aware, uh, you, you can, start to make wise choices in response so you might think it sounds really fun to sit there and surf the internet for three hours but actually when you start to pay attention to how you feel after an hour starting to feel really drained starting to feel a bit fragmented are you actually enjoying the experience just notice are you actually enjoying the experience right now okay so that you're getting something out of it but are you actually is it nourishing you is it is it, or is it draining you, just that curiosity? Even just inviting that curiosity, a lot can happen. And the same with the phone. So when the phone rings, if you feel that pressure, what is that like, you know, in your body? Is it an anxiousness? Is it a, you know, is it a restlessness? What is that feeling? And even just as soon as you do that, you're already mindful because you're paying it, you're, you've already woken up into the moment. And then I would just say, make a conscious choice, you know, mm. do you need to, maybe it'd be good for some of us to practice not answering the phone and getting back to people later. I know, to be honest, a lot of the really, um, I have some, some friends that are, you know, doing very well in life, you know, running big companies and doing all kinds of fun things. And most of them, everybody knows in their life that they answer calls, they, they, they will not answer your call for most of the day, but they will get back to you within between four and five o'clock every day. You know, and so do we need to answer our phones on demand all the time? I don't think so. You know, most people, if it's urgent, they'll call you over and over again. So I would just say um, that the pressure you feel is probably more self-imposed than Um, other people and i can tell you you can definitely educate your friends as well (laughs) i've educated my friends yes i'm not and i I, yeah i just don't um everyone knows that they're probably i'm probably not going to answer the phone when they first call because i don't want to train my my myself to to run to the phone and that, that might be extreme you know some people have kids and they have you know, or they have a phone that they do have to answer all the time. So, but I'm just, I guess, just giving some options here Mm. to consider.
0: It's interesting that you said you don't want to train yourself. I mean, it sounds like you're recognizing that whenever you engage in that activity of responding or reacting immediately to the phone, even if you're doing it intentionally, you might be digging that groove a little bit deeper to do the same thing again the next time. And you have some awareness of how your own mind works in that way. And you want to be careful about digging the groove that you want to dig and not the others.
1: Mm-hmm, that is true. <laughs> yeah. It, and, you know, uh, you know, we know now in the research technology, and I'm sure cause you talk to a lot of people about this, but technology is very addictive. Um, you, the, you know, people are seeing the same neural pathways as uh, cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, you know, heroin addiction, same neural pathways in people's brains that are heavy technology users that are addicted to technology. Something interesting to consider too is that, you know, all these other addictive sub- substances like cigarettes and alcohol and all of these other things, And well, drugs are illegal, um, but They have age limits, you know, gambling. You can't gamble until you're 18 years old. Technology is just as addictive as those things because every time uh, you use technology, it's giving you a dopamine hit in your brain. Dopamine is the most addictive substance on earth. It's what human beings are most addicted to is dopamine. Um, We are not shielding our kids from Technology. It was a new thing that came out, and um, we're seeing kids as young as, you know, 11, eight years old with fully very ingrained neural pathways of addiction, which will take some unwinding. But it is really important for people to know just how addictive technology really is and to really, um, it's having awareness around it is so important. And and me, I, I probably. I in I'm in the mindfulness industry and I'm an industry nerd. So, you know, <laughs> I I go to great lengths to protect my mind. Um, and I'm very much a custodian of my own mind. I'm careful about what goes in. And um, so I do, I'm very, very, very cautious with my use of technology. Very, very cautious. Nothing wrong with technologies, nothing wrong with alcohol in moderation, in moderation. It's wonderful, both of them. Beautiful things. Well, not for everybody. Um. But most things like sugar, you know, in moderation, that's fine. You know, in a lot of it, those can kill you in your body if you get, you know. So I'm very, very careful about laying down neural pathways that might uh, get me into trouble.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's it's very interesting, the analogy between alcohol and food and, and the mind. I think it's quite common for people to except that you put something harmful into your body and it will hurt your body. It has an effect. And yet it seems quite common. And if I look at my own beliefs, there's, there's a part of it in there that, that if I just view something or just see something, it's different than food that somehow I have the free will or control to decide how it will affect me. Um, And, and you're suggesting maybe not that that's not entire, that's entirely untrue, but that there can be ways in which, uh, merely exposing your mind to things can have effects and that it could be wise to make some choices about what you take into your mind, like what you put into your mouth when you eat
1: absolutely the one of the one of the principles that every single one of the world's wisdom traditions every single one of the world's spiritual teachers that i've exposed myself to and i've read over 500 books on um you know spirituality comparative religion different you know texts and Books on psychology, all these like, you know, different things in that field. And I can tell you that they're all unanimous. One of the biggest principles, I've I've broken down the there's like seven principles that keep appearing over and over and over again. One of those seven is that um you really do need to become a custodian of your mind um, and your body too. And and there's an encouragement about being a custodian of life itself, but your mind is just like your body. If you, um, if you are exposing yourself to people, to environments, to, to um, even images, to uh, behaviours, ev- everything that you do um, is affecting your mind and will have an ongoing effect. But it's, it's just like the body, you know, if you, if you brush your teeth and you go home and you look in the mirror, what's changed? Nothing. You can't see any change. Just, you can't, no, your teeth aren't any wider. It doesn't make, but if you brush your teeth twice a day, every day, um, you know, it's going to keep, and if you don't, <laughs> there's a real <laughs> consequence to that too. Um, but so these little, and but some things have massive effects. Like there are some things that you can, you know, one-off things that you can do, like you know, that can have big effects on mind and body like having an accident or something like that or exposing yourself to something very, very difficult or violent or something like that. But the little things that you do every single day like like surfing the internet, if you do that one hour a day or if you put um, – you hang around environments or people that where they're sort of very draining environments – You know, talking negative all the time, or uh, it's just like ingesting bad food. You know, the habits that you do with the mind—you don't. It's just the same as eating food that where you're putting on weight. Every little thing has an effect, just like every little thing you expose your body to has an effect.
0: Mm. And to to take that analogy to something you mentioned earlier about. Children, um, you know, we do pay careful attention to what children eat because their bodies are developing in a different way at a young age and they need Mm. certain kind of nutrition that adults don't necessarily need in order to lay that solid foundation for their bones and for their muscles. And you mentioned the the problems we have now with kids being exposed to digital media, phones all the time. I wonder in your teaching uh, if you teach Parents or children directly, and what what either what recommendations do you have to people, or are there any particular ways in which you address the the needs of children or the special kinds of ways in which they're at risk from technology
1: mm. i don 't work with kids directly um, when I did the mindfulness summit uh, two years ago, so I, I did a big online conference and I got to interview. Uh, lots of amazing uh, teachers and researchers from around the world and I brought in some experts on um, teaching mindfulness to children and um, you know what their number one bit of advice was? Mm, what? They were all unanimous on this. Their number one bit of advice was the most important way to teach mindfulness to children is for the parents to to be it, you know, mm. to to live it and breathe it and the kids will pick up way more Um, And in a non, in a non, they said, especially with teenagers, I don't have children either. So I have to take a pass on their advice to you. They said, and I quote, don't even bother trying to teach mindfulness to your teenager for
0: sure. (laughs) Like they will
1: just, you will just make it so daggy and naff that they will never go near it. So don't even, don't try to teach it to them directly. Just be it, live it. And they will. They will respect you and they will pick it up and um, they will integrate it in a way that you couldn't teach them in a preachy kind of way. They'll just mm-hmm. look at you and go, okay, this is how people are. This is how you go about life. So that's that's the only piece of advice that, that, that I can offer is I think, you know, um, and this goes for teaching anything or trying to kind of like pass on anything you know you go first <laughs> you go first and um you know do your best to integrate it into your life and and you probably touch the lives of many more people um but i do think i do think the most important thing for parents to know for all parents to know is that we don't fully understand the effects of technology i'm 38 years old and I got my first email address when I was 18. I had a tech-free childhood, which I'm very, very grateful for. We don't fully understand yet. We're only just starting to see some of the fallout from what's going to happen when somebody's raised with tech. Um, I think it's very, very important for um, youth, especially when they're going through. They're going through, like their brains are developing and they're laying down. Neural pathways that are going to set them up for life. I, if if I was having a child these days, I would be trying my best to give them lots of tech-free time. Um, you know, when I when I was young, what we did for fun is we went out into our backyards <laughs> and we played cricket and we climbed trees. And you know, yes, we got ourselves into all kinds of mischief. I fell out of trees and winded myself and did all kinds of things, but. You know, we learnt really good social skills with other kids. You know, that's a really big thing that kids, are, they're not developing proper social skills these days because they're doing a lot of socialising online. They're not learning how to socialise face-to-face properly, um, which is one of the most important skills for life. So I would say, you know, get educated. If you're a parent, get educated um, and and try to understand um, the effects of tech a little bit more and and do what you can to get your kids um. You know, having having tech free time and and um, and also, you know, just you know, on that. When I ask people when they're on on retreats or learning mindfulness with me, I ask people put raise your hand. How many of you feel like for some reason naturally mindfulness seems to happen when you're in nature? It just seems to happen without any effort, and everyone unanimously mm-hmm. puts up their hand. So that's just like an interesting thing to consider. That, you know, when kids spend time outdoors and doing kind of, you know, natural things like that, this they seem to be better at grounding and centering and connecting with life and being awake. So, yeah, just some things to consider. But I don't have kids, so I'm going to throw my hands in the air and go, I know it's hard too. So, you know, do what you can.
0: Interviewed a couple of other people about this, including uh, Susan Mousart, who's in Australia, who uh, had written a book about her six-month experiment going screen-free with her three kids back around 2009. Uh, she had a lot to say about this, but it's it's great. I mean, it sounds like you're saying the main piece of advice to parents, which might be really challenge- more challenging for them than for the kids, is to live it by example for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wonder if we can pick up a little bit on something you said earlier. You gave an example of with the with the phone of pausing and breathing uh, before picking it up. You have a great video where you. Uh, Described seven strategies for maintaining mindfulness in the information age. And this pausing, taking breaths before interacting was one of them. I, one thing I found really helpful in that was you suggested perhaps even putting up a note card on your screen or somewhere where you could see it to remind mm. yourself to pause and breathe. I, I you f- personally find visual reminders really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it helps me, uh, not have to rely on my own mind, particularly if it's in a mindless state, <laughs> the visual, <laughs> yeah, well, and,
1: yeah, you just get caught up in the flow of things sometimes and you move from one task to another and Yeah.
0: You had I wonder if you could talk about a a few of the others you had things like wise waiting, practice unitasking, uh making mindful transitions. I mean all of these could apply to things other than technology, but I dunno if you could mm. say a little bit about them specifically as they relate to our use of technology.
1: Yeah, sure. And these are these are things that I use in my own life to to I guess help me stay in a a sort of healthy relationship with the technology in my life because I am just like many people on my laptop quite a bit, you know, doing things for uh, my business. So I'm just like, I just kind of want to put it out there to everybody that I'm just like them, you know, I'm I'm just kind of in the same situation. So um, a couple of really uh, wonderful ways to Sprinkle little moments of mindfulness throughout a normal day um, of using technology. Um, So we mentioned one already, which was, you know, if there is a beep or a ding or a ring or something like that, and you feel that pressure that you were talking about, that urge to just reach for it, uh, just to take one breath before answering it just gives you a little moment of um, coming into awareness. It, does, it Whether you reach for the device or not after you do it, it really doesn't matter. But the main thing is the way that you're doing it is not unconscious. It's not out of habit. It's a conscious choice. So you can condition yourself to use those things as wake-up calls instead of lures into unconsciousness, which is really powerful. Just just with one breath, one mindful breath, so you feel your breath flowing in and you feel your breath flowing out. Um, and uh, by the way, Google's Search Inside Yourself program, yes. which is a mi- mindfulness and emotional intelligence-based program, uh, they encourage all of their staff to do one mindful breath before they hit send on an email, every single time they send an email, they they stop and maybe they want to reread the email even after they do that breath. Sometimes they encourage them if it was a bit of a if they find that they were about to send the email and there was a bit of something behind it, something emotional they were sending a bit of a an email that had some oomph to it to reread <laughs> it to see if they want to really send pre- hit send. so um so mindful pauses. Um, wise waiting, I call it wise waiting is to see if it's possible to actually allow there to be gaps in your day. Um, in other words, you know, like when I was sitting waiting for this podcast to start, for instance, I felt the urge to walk around my house and do a few things before,
0: (laughs) before the (laughs) call.
1: And I actually sat down, I just sat down and just went, no, I'm just going to sit here. Just like, just wait. And breathe. This is in the old days, this was just, you know, a completely normal thing to just sit you and know, wait. <laughs> so, th- this extends a lot further than just with technology. I mean, wise waiting can be, you know, if you hit a red light, well, this is actually with technology, though, because we end up making phone calls in all these moments and answering things. If you're at a red light in traffic, you know, just just wait. You know, don't, you don't need to like, Call someone, or it just can sit there and just breathe and wait. And it same thing. If you're in line at the grocery store, it's nearly your turn, but there's three people in front of you. You could reach for your device in that moment, and you could just start texting and doing all kinds of things, or you could just um, you could just wait, just breathe, and allow yourself allow that to be a moment of training mindfulness instead of training unawareness. Mm-hmm. Really powerful, actually, wise waiting. It sounds really simple and I will say to people if they're not used to doing this, if you've gotten, you know, really attached to your iPhone and you're really used to, you know, texting or doing things in every little moment, when you first do wise waiting, especially if there's other people around like at the grocery store, you will feel awkward because you're not used to doing it. You'll be kind of like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Is everyone going to be looking at me because I'm just standing here doing nothing? It's okay. People used to do that not so long ago. People used to just and and maybe you will even have a conversation with someone who knows. But um, it's okay, and <laughs> you don't even have to pick up a magazine. Just um, give yourself a few minutes to really just ground and center and connect to the sounds around you. Just feel the beating of your heart. You know, can, use that. Use those moments to connect to your life, you know, to, to establish yourself in awareness so that you can live the rest of your day fully alive is really powerful. Um, another thing, unit tasking instead of multitasking. So a lot of us have a tendency to try and do lots of things at once. Um, and the research shows that multitasking, by the way, doesn't actually exist. What you're doing is you're moving, your, you're flitting attention quickly from task to task. There's no such thing. Att- we don't have, our, our brains are not capable of literally doing several things at once. We we have to f- quickly flit our attention from thing to thing. And the research shows that multitasking not only makes you less productive, Um, but it also trains a state of hyperarousal where you're very sort of fragmented and um, you you get exhausted um, and you also make more mistakes. So there's literally no reason to do multitasking. It doesn't do what you want it to do. So unit tasking is a, a more mindful way of doing tasks where when you're doing something You kind of train yourself as best you can to bring the fullness of your awareness to that thing and do the task from beginning to ending. And then, you know, complete it with all of your awareness just there and training yourself not to flit it away halfway through the task onto a phone call or a different email or something else or a cup of tea or this or that. Just staying with it, giving it all your attention and then finish. Um, You'll be more productive more relaxed enjoy your work more and train in mindfulness while you're getting things done so it's really really awesome um I spoke about digital awareness already digital awareness is that noticing of what's happening in your body when you hear the phone or when you're surfing the net for hours what is it actually giving you is it nourishing you or is it draining you so that's a good question to ask is this nourishing me Or is this draining me? Is this helping me be my fullest self and best self? Or is this taking me away from being my fullest self and best self? And just by noticing that, you will start to make wiser choices. You start to make more conscious choices because you just see. Basically, you just you see what you're getting. You see clearly what you're getting. Oh, this is not actually what I want. (laughs) So, mindful transitions. So, mindful transition means. when you finish listening to this podcast or for us when we finish doing this podcast you know there'll be a time when um the the end will come and then what tends to do what we tend to do is we tend to immediately move on to something else like you know no sooner is the laptop closed or the end of it happens and then you're straight onto the phone or you're doing something else so mindful transitions just means um once something finishes, like say, an email, just pause for a moment. Just one moment, it doesn't have to be long. One breath in, one breath out, and just coming back to awareness again. Okay, so I'm um, instead of mindlessly just doing thing after thing after thing after thing after thing after thing, which is a cycle that many of us get caught in. Um, the mindful transitions gives us little breaks in the day. Where we can unrev ourselves because when your system gets really revved, you tend to just do and do and do and do and do and do and do. But mindful transitions gives you these little breaks where, when one thing's finished, you get to ground, settle your nervous system, take a breath, um, and then so that becomes these little sprinklings of mindfulness all throughout the day. It's um, my favourite practice actually, mindful transitions. Um, I usually do three. Three breaths. Hmm. The final thing that I will say that uh, I think could be really powerful is um, for people to to, to encourage people to have time to unplug completely. Could be just, it could be an hour a day. Uh, It could be a couple of hours a week or one evening a week, say. Um, it could be one day a month or one weekend a month. Uh, but I think it's really important for people to have some time that is completely unplugged. And during that time to do things that nourish them, you know, do go to have a picnic or go on a bike ride or spend time with people that you love. And yes, you will have, if you're addicted to technology, there will be a discomfort. You know, there will be, probably a restlessness depending on your level of addiction there may be a real anxiousness um and my encouragement would be it's okay that those things are there it's okay that you feel a bit uncomfortable um and and to not give up because you feel a bit uncomfortable it's natural to feel a bit uncomfortable if you ha- if you're really attached to something um but to my encouragement would be it's okay it might feel a bit weird um, but focus on doing things that nourish you during that day. Instead of giving up the digital detox, just focus on what can I do right now that would, you know, nourish me without the tech, you know, maybe go for a walk outside or
0: yeah, have a cup of tea. And when you say go for a bike ride, I I think that I've been in Cambridge here, which is right near MIT, and I've seen people on their bikes with the phone attached to the handlebars, texting while they're biking. <laughs> that is
1: a really bad idea. Really bad idea. I don't. I don't have enough coordination to pull that off for even like thirty seconds. I'd be off the bike, feeling very sorry for myself. I wouldn't. I wouldn't attempt that one.
0: Thanks for sharing all of those examples. I mean, I think they're really practical. One thing I also like about them is. Um, none of them is a formal meditation practice. I know you teach that. You teach meditation and yoga. All of the examples you gave were things that you can do that are integrated into your life, not stepping outside of it for example, to sit. Uh, But ways in which you can find these opportunities within your day uh, while you're interacting with technology, and you've pointed out so many different ways in which there are such opportunities. Uh, And for people who might think, I don't have the time to stop, set aside uh, space for sitting on a cushion and meditating, Uh, well, you've pointed out, you certainly have time for a breath uh, or for a minute and it could be as part of being in the grocery line or uh, while you're doing work.
1: Yeah. And it will take no time at all out of your life, out of your normal life. In fact, some of those strategies, according to the research, will actually make you more productive and and actually save time and save mistakes. Um, So, There's no real reason not to do it. (laughs) Give it a try. I would just say to people, I know it does feel when you're in a when you're really revved, for some reason it does seem unreasonable to stop and take three breaths. That seems just way too inconvenient. You know, when you get into that really hyper aroused state, you're like, no, don't have time for breaths. Well, I hope you do have time for breaths because (laughs) you know you're in trouble if you don't. But um, you know, three deep slow breaths takes about 20 seconds one breath takes no time at all I mean it's really probably about seven seconds and yeah I mean they they, these are so practical such a practical um simple way to just to you know to come home to ourselves because you've got to ask the question hey what are we doing all the doing for once our survival needs are met as human beings, most of what we do, all of what we do, is because we, we're looking for happiness. We want happiness. So once our survival needs are met, we're all looking for happiness. We want peace. We want happiness. We want love. We want connection. And what are we doing all the doing for? Is it getting us what we want? For most of us, according to the research, it is not. You know, We live in a stressed, fast-paced world where we're hyperconnected and we're, many of us are doing what neuroscientist Rick Hansen calls redlining through our days, redlining through our days in a kind of semi-fight-or-flight state. And there's, there's a better way to live. Yeah, there's a better way to live. And these little little things that you do, can bring you home to yourself over and over and over again throughout a busy day and reconnect you to what actually really matters in life because because a lot of us are losing our way. So I would say to people, you know, just give some of these things a go and just test and measure and see what happens. Um, and if you have got the time, doing a little bit of formal practice will make a big difference as well, even if it's only 10 minutes. So I do encourage people if they, if they can give mindfulness a go for five, 10 minutes a day, it'll make a big difference if you do it consistently.
0: Hmm. Thanks. It's a really inspiring invitation. Uh, And I'd like to end it just by repeating back the question that you asked, I think people to ask themselves, what are you doing all the doing for? Hmm. So thanks so much, Melly O'Brien, for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Yeah, you too. And I think this is an important topic, and I'm really glad you're doing this podcast.
0: Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Melly O'Brien, who blogs about mindfulness at mrsmindfulness.com. That's MRSMindfulness.com. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at TechnologyForMindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.